Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor and producer Tessa Thompson. For the past decade, you've probably noticed Thompson on screen doing... Well, a little bit of everything. She's played a film student turned radio host in Dear White People, activist Diane Nash in Selma, an aspiring musician in the Creed franchise, Valkyrie in Thor Ragnarok and Avengers Endgame. She's also starred in more personal projects like Sorry to Bother You and Sylvie's Love. Her most recent performance comes in Passing, directed by Rebecca Hall. Based on the book by Nella Larson, the film, set in 1920s New York, focuses on Irene Redfield, played by Thompson. She's a mother to two children and a wife to a doctor, played by Andre Holland. And in spite of the pangs of being black in 1920s America, the Redfields appear to be humming along, living in a spacious brownstone in Harlem. That is, until Irene has a chance encounter with an old childhood friend, Claire. Claire is a light-skinned black woman passing for white, married to a white man, unaware of her race. After all the time that has passed, Claire hopes to renew a friendship with Irene. Their reunion, while initially welcomed by Irene, begins to undo the stability of the Redfield home. Here's a clip from the trailer. Pardon me, I don't mean to stare, but I think I know you. Claire? Mm -hmm. So you haven't ever thought to? What? You ever thought of passing? No, why should I? Now I have everything I've ever wanted. This is my husband, John Bellew. Does he? No. But you dislike Negroes, Mr. Bellew. No, 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 not at all. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't she extraordinarily beautiful? I suppose. Have you ever thought of what you'd do if John found out? I do what I want more than anything right now. I come up here to live with you. You think they'd be satisfied being white? Who's satisfied being anything? We're all of us passing for something or other. Aren't we? That was a clip from Passing, now available on Netflix. For her lead performance, Thompson is in the Oscar conversation for Best Actress. But 
She has a curious relationship to the circus of Hollywood, perhaps because she grew up in Los Angeles with creative parents, her father a musician, her mother a painter and sculptor. In turn, Thompson's aspirations extend beyond acting. She's interested instead, I think, in the long game, which is why she recently created her production company, Viva Mod. With this company, she says her aim is to inspire new voices, to feel like they have a home that's safe, to cultivate stories they want to tell, stories primarily made by and focused on people of color. But the name Viva Maud is in reference to the 1971 film Harold and Maud. You know the one. It was initially panned by critics, underperforming at the box office. In fact, the movie, directed by Hal Ashby, only became profitable about a decade later, in 1983, the year Thompson was born. It took a minute before becoming that cult classic we know and love. Like Thompson, it played the long game. And so... Here's some of her story, charting where she is today, the formative pit stops that led her to this performance and passing, and how she plans to change the film industry in the years to come. I hope you enjoy. Thompson. Hi. How do you feel being on this show? I feel great. You know, I listen to the show a lot, which I said to you before. I don't know if you believe me. I believed you 50%. The other 50, I also mean. <laughs> and so in a way, it feels kind of surreal because I, you know, I've listened to you and I hear your voice and now I hear it in my headphones, which I'm wearing, but I'm here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It feels meta or not meta. It feels... Uh, it's strange. It's strange. It feels strange. But I um I really have enjoyed listening to your show so much and all of the incredible people that have been on it. You're being nice to me now. No, I just find uh, it's soothing, first and foremost. I've had, you know, many moments that have been, um, yeah, really insightful and impactful. And in general, have made me feel less alone during a weird, lonely time. That was the goal. Didn't know it was going to work. And... Um... Honestly, it made everyone who makes this show, and it's like a village. I think it made all of us feel less alone last year, and now especially this year. So that's as much as we're going to be able to talk about me, though. I think we have to cut it off right here. (laughs) Okay, deal. We have to cut it off. Well, here's the thing. You and I have met a few times. Yes. It's mostly been a bunch of nonsense. (laughs) Yes. There'll be plenty of nonsense on this, but but I want to get into some things because I didn't know a whole lot. And now I have some questions. Okay. Don't get nervous. (laughs) I prefer to ask questions than to answer them. I get three, you get one. Okay, fair enough. I'm looking at your beautiful dog in the other room. (laughs) Coltrane, hey, he gets a shout out. We've never had a dog in the studio before. Oh, wow. This is what we do for you. That's so sweet. Thank you. I did call ahead to ask if it would be okay. I like that you're mentioning that. (laughs) Well, I just want, want everyone listening, feeling less alone to understand I don't just bring this dog everywhere. But um, thanks for having us. We're happy to have you. I rewatched Passing last night, and I want to start here. The making of this film mm. seemed challenging, in part because this character you're playing is a repressed person. You have to keep a lot in. So in making this, you compared the film and the character to the lead in A Woman Under the Influence by John Cassavetes. Now, That film involves a woman slowly unraveling. Passing has some of the same. I want to start here. How do you navigate that? Creating a character that slowly unravels on screen. Is it possible to not unravel off screen? No. (laughs) So you're saying you did? I did, yeah. I was really fascinated by the idea of repression, as you said. I am someone that personally puts a pretty large premium on freedom or the idea of it. And this film explores, as does Nella Larson's original book, the idea or the question, rather, is like, how free are we really to be our own people? And inside of that, Irene, the character I play, is someone who, as you say, is holding a lot in. But it's requisite inside of the performance to have all the things inside that you're holding. 
And that was challenging. And so it just meant that sometimes off screen, I had to like go somewhere else and have a scream or have a cry, which is not, I've never had that experience while working. Was that therapeutic? Yeah, it was therapeutic. And then I also think, you know, it was 23 days. We didn't have a lot of time to make the movie. So that was a part of the challenge. But it meant that there was a finite amount of time that I was going to feel undone. I knew there would be an end. And so I think there was also a pleasure in indulging in that. You go like, okay, you got 23 days to be a a real basket case, you know, internally and to be excavating stuff that's ugly and Because you weren't a basket case before or after that. That's debatable. I sort of think this, and everyone has different approaches to acting, but for me, I think there's a fair amount of sort of either accentuating, making greater the things that exist in you or minimizing them to have access to character. And so what I really understood about Irene is someone that lives very squarely in her head. That I get. I can be heady. You feel that way? I don't feel trapped in it, but I feel I'm having robust conversation up there sometimes. It's a thing. Yeah, I have I have a lot of thoughts. On the margins of this character, you would take passages from the book and put them on your script to kind of unpack the interiority yeah. of that character. What is that process? It's a new one because I had never worked um, on an adaptation. I never had source material to work with. So Irene is someone that has like four thoughts, five thoughts, and none of them come out sometimes. Uh, You know, at least I get one in on her. But so I use sort of Nella's language, those dense passages describing the things that Irene is thinking and feeling to sort of score my script and, and understand what the internal life of the character and what I was trying to communicate. I know you're presented with a whole bunch of different parts at at all times. The reason I think you wanted to make this movie comes pretty early in the film, and it's a scene I just wanted to watch. (laughs) Oh, no. We're going to watch it now? We're going to watch it now. Okay. This is early on in the film Passing, starring Tessa Thompson and actor Bill Camp. Things aren't always what they seem, Hugh. Bobby Dan. Nobody could tell from looking at her. No. Most surprising. Tell me, can you always tell the difference? Oh, now you really are sounding ignorant. No, no, I mean it. Feelings of kinship or something like that. Cute, stop talking to me like you're writing a piece for the National Geographic. I can tell same as you. But I suppose sometimes there is a, a thing, a thing that can't be registered. Yes, I understand what you mean. Yet lots of people pass all the time. It's easy for a Negro to pass for white, I'm not sure. It'd be so simple for a white person to pass for colored. Never thought of that. Why should you? Sometimes I think you could. Yes. And in a way, if you can, why wouldn't you? Who's to say I'm not? I'm curious, re-watching that scene, what were you thinking about? That day in particular was such a... There was something really powerful about being in a room with a lot of Black people dancing. (laughs) You know? Like, I don't know, the film itself has a real intimacy and there's a claustrophobia to it in a way. And that scene just with all those background artists and dancers and musicians and the world sort of felt opened up. It was nice because I had been day 21 of whatever personal spiral I was in. And this was like a scene where you be like, oh, no, there's other people. (laughs) Other people exist, which is nice. The line in the film, we're all passing for something or another. That seems like the central thesis of the movie. Yeah. Is that why you wanted to make it in part? It's exactly why I wanted to make it. To me, the film wasn't really, isn't really about race. It's, yeah, about the ways in which none of us fit too squarely in the boxes that we either put ourselves in or put in. And I just think that's fascinating. I've I've always been really interested in identity and the ways in which we construct it. Also, just there's so many takes if you sort of read about what people see inside of Nella's work, particularly in passing. For some folks, it's you know, about repressed homosexuality. For others, it's a novel that is about, or a novella that's about, you know, marital strife. And it's kind of all those things. I love the idea of making a piece of work where it's reception. There's just such diversity of thought 
the way that it lands on the audience members says more about them than it does about what we made. This is the part where you ask me what I thought. What did you think? No. <laughs> no, but I'm curious, what did you think? I mean, honestly, my first impression is kind of the thing you're talking about and what I brought up, which is that it lives in this ambiguity, mm. both within the frame and then how people actually respond to it in the theater. How everyone who has seen it, I think, has a different response. And just to have a movie that's doing that, I think, is valuable. Well, I think the film itself is also passing in a way. It's like performing its idea of where it wants to exist inside of Hollywood iconography. Which we won't know for decades. We'll never know. We'll know where it lands for some people in time. Maybe. I sort of love the idea, and this is much probably to the chagrin of people that I work with, but the <laughs> idea of being sort of undervalued, not entirely seen in your time does not bother me. Yes. This is why you created your production company. Yeah. With Harold and Maude. As yeah, the, it took like 13 years for anyone to care about that film, for it to make a profit. Until the year you were born. Until the year I was born. Hey, you've done your research. Do you have someone doing that? Or do you do that? I'd say it's 90% me. This week, it's 85% me, 15% Shiloh Fagan. Thank you, Shiloh Fagan. Now, I want to sit with that line you just had about our inability to fit squarely into boxes. Mm. This is an idea Nella Larson was writing about in 1929. Yeah. It's also something Zora Neale Hurston was interrogating one year prior in 1928. Here's the passage. But in the main, I feel like a brown bag of miscellany propped against a wall. Against a wall in company with other bags, white, red, and yellow. Pour out the contents, and there is discovered a jumble of small things, priceless and worthless. A first water diamond, an empty spool, bits of broken glass. A key to a door long since crumbled away, a rusty knife blade, old shoes saved for a road that never was and never will be, a nail bent under the weight of things too heavy for any nail, a dried flower or two still a little fragrant. In your hand is the brown bag. On the ground before you is the jumble it held, so much like the jumble in the bags. Could they be emptied, that all might be dumped in a single heap, and the bags refilled without altering the content of any greatly. A bit of colored glass more or less would not matter. Perhaps that is how the great stuffer of bags filled them in the first place. Mm. Larson's book was talking about not squarely fitting into boxes. Yeah. That passage from Hurston is talking about the content of those boxes. And I just wondered where that landed with you. Another reason, actually why I really wanted to make passing is this idea of what gets to be canon. No one ever handed me Nella Larson's work. I didn't know it existed. And that felt astounding to me. And so making this also felt like an attempt to sort of canonize someone that should have been. I sort of think, um, I feel like inside of the novella passing is this argument that Nella's having with herself. There is on one hand this character who in our rendering is played by Ruth Negga that sort of defies, you know, righteousness that wants to live with a sort of vigor that, you know, says I will stomp on everything in my path because I will be on my path. I will live life on my own terms. And there's this other woman in my character, Irene, that decides to live by rules is the way to be. And I feel like there's this struggle inside of Larson herself to sort of contend with these two very different ideas of how to exist in the world. And that I really, um, that I understand and think is fascinating. You contend with that. Yeah. And I also, I think we all do to a certain extent. And then you add in the intersections of race, class, gender, the time in which you contextualize it with the time in which we exist. And all of that gets more complicated. The thing that felt so fascinating to me and why it felt remarkable that Nella wasn't more celebrated in her time and even in ours is that she was writing about all those intersections before there was language around it. I've been sitting with the words and work of Bell Hooks, who we lost recently, and has been so impactful for me. I feel like Nella was wrestling with so many of those ideas well before people were doing that. 
which is a part of the reason why I think when the book was released in 29, people didn't see it for actually what it was in a way. A friend said to me the other night, she'd rather be a slow burn than burn out. And I was like, huh. So in that way, I guess it's, you know, Nella's been the, a very slow burn. I like that. Yeah, I like it too. I'd rather be a slow burn than burn out. I wonder what she would have preferred. Yeah, and some folks are meant to like burn bright, right? And like burn out quick. I think part of what the film is reckoning with, and the same can be true of Bell Hooks's work, mm-hmm. is that in not fitting neatly into that square box, you're trying to gain access to your full self. Yeah. And I wondered for you, is acting the best way you know how to access that full self? I hope so. Otherwise, I'm really wasting my time <laughs> with this limited time that I have here in this place, you know? I mean, the job literally is contending with self, unpacking, interrogating. I think the more interesting thing is that I feel like even though that is solitary in its way, connects me to people. You say this podcast takes a village. Making a film, a piece of work, takes a village, takes a zip code. You know, like it takes a lot, a lot of people. And so in the making of it, I'm connected to people. And then also when you release something, it's not yours anymore. It belongs to people. I think feeling connected to other people's humanity actually makes me feel fuller inside of my own. Putting a pause on the conversation for a second. We'll be right back with Tessa Thompson after this quick break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect 
with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Before the break, you were talking about that connection you find while acting. Yeah. But I've been trying to pinpoint where your desire to even want to do this work began. And I have a theory. (laughs) I'm fascinated to know. You grew up in Los Angeles. Your parents divorced at around age two or three. They didn't actually divorce because they never married, but they Separated. separated. In turn, you stay in California. Your father moves to Fort Greene. Yeah. Every once in a while... You'd call him. (laughs) Yes. And in calling him, you would leave a voicemail. It's actually important to note that this is actually before he had moved. So I would see him a lot because we lived in the same city and I split my time between my parents, but I would also call him a lot. And yes, I would leave voicemails. But it wasn't a standard voicemail. What was happening? Typically different voices, characters, songs, bits, ongoing bits. Do you remember any of these? Well, I remember them because they've been played to me. My dad, like, digitizes stuff. And so I've heard these recordings. Do you want me to do it? Do you have, you, yeah. Beep. (laughs) Hi, Mark, it's Diane. (laughs) My favorite one is one where I've, like, called many times that day. And I just, I'm like, hi, Dad, I'm not going to do a voice or anything this time. As if, like, he, you know, would have been fooled. My dad actually indulged me a lot. My dad loved to, like, photograph, and he still does. And he had all these, like, early camcorders and Super 8 cameras. And he would sort of use me sometimes as, like, a light subject. You know, like, in the frame, he'd be like, stand there. And so he would also, like, let me DP and hand me a camera. And so some of my early experiences, most all of my early experiences were sort of around Hollywood, hanging out with my dad, being on camera, using a camera. As a kid, you said, I was always interested in songwriting and playing guitar. My dad would be a person that would give me an entrance into that. But because he was good at it, that terrified me. My mom is also really gifted. She can make anything with her hands. And my stepmom is a photographer. Usually when people hear about creative parents, they think it's this inviting, nurturing... (laughs) But it was probably also daunting. Yeah, I think it is daunting. I think when you're trying to construct what you want to be, there's like a necessary moment when you rebel against what you might be based on what your parents are. What does that mean? Growing up in Los Angeles, I think for a long time I couldn't imagine myself wanting to act because like so many people did here, you know, and in a similar way, it's like my dad's a musician. Like I'm going to do something else. I'm going to stake my own claim but my my parents were yeah hugely inviting in terms of this sounds crass but they didn't care <laughs> about what i might become and there's freedom in that some people may hear that and they think why don't they care you know i i imagine i'm not a parent <laughs> but i imagine as a parent what your children become is also like such a huge source of your own fulfillment you know and what you've done right and my parents don't have that kind of ego attached to parenthood. Like, I think they really just see me. It's not really about what I do or make. It's sort of who I am. And I think that gave me a a certain amount of freedom. And also, I think in terms of performing, I was like, it was like a secret. You know, I was sort of like doing it without really letting anybody, my parents know. I was like working away at this thing. I still actually have to remind myself to invite my family and friends more into what I'm doing. It feels like this thing I sort of do in secret and then, you know, in my life in a real way that has nothing to do with work. Why did it have to be in secret? 
I guess in a way because it feels like when you invite people into your dreams and aspirations and ambitions, then you have people that you, I don't know, there's like accountability or something. Could disappoint. Yeah, could disappoint. It felt good to keep those things for myself and see how it would pan out. (laughs) This is fascinating, though. (laughs) When you go to high school, you know, a lot of kids in high school, they like to start a band. Mm -hmm. They like to play sports. They like to not do homework. (laughs) We were talking earlier about a film that's showing us that we need to better define people and by better defining them actually lose all definition. Yeah. And part of this thinking, it goes back to 1928, 1929, where the film is set. But for you, it seemed to start in high school where you create this racial harmony club Mm -hmm. that um, sounds like something I just made up. (laughs) It's a crazy name. It doesn't hold up. It's it's not great branding. It's not terrible branding. I didn't come up with the name, by the way. Mm -hmm. I didn't. You sure? I'm positive. Okay. I'm I'm positive. Rebecca Hart, you have to... Rebecca Hall created the name? Rebecca Hart. (laughs) What was this club? This, it wasn't so much a club, so it was an experiment. You took 20 kids from the five basic racial groups, the way that like now the the government would identify you. And it's like a weekend long sleepover on the campus grounds and talk about perceptions of self, perceptions of all the other racial identities in safe spaces. And then you dialogue together where you sort of, you've made these lists of things that you stereotypes about the other. And then you sit together in dialogue and sort of face some of those ideas and have conversations around early experiences of trying to unpack like where your perceptions of each other with regards to race, where they come from. What high schooler comes up with this kind of idea? (laughs) Tell me how this happens. Well, I went to Santa Monica High School and I would witness this phenomenon at lunch that this school itself was like pretty segregated racially. There were like different pockets where people would hang out. And maybe because of my mixed race identity, there was like, I mean, I think in general in high school, you're inclined to not feel a sense of belonging. You know, I felt that as any high schooler does. But I was also very aware of the ways in which I may have felt that because of the way that people oriented themselves. I think in having conversations with my high school friends at the time, this seemed like a way to address that. And also, we we were coming off of a time, not when we were at school, but there was a recent sort of history of kind of race-related violence that was also gang-related. But This was the late 90s. Yeah. When you think back on that teenage self, Mm -hmm. who do you see? I see someone really eager to do something that felt useful to um, be an instigator. Did that lead you to acting from there? Maybe. It was also around, around that time, maybe a year later, that I also discovered acting in a real way. I started doing plays and I took a film class and I got really interested in like Shakespeare and the classics. And I remember doing a Shakespeare play and being like bad, you know, like knowing that I was bad and wanting to just be better, like wanting to win. But you don't, you can't like win at that stuff. It's so subjective. You want to like produce the most tears out of the audience. (laughs) Yeah, there's no metric for how you win. But I just wanted to continuously get better. You were motivated to do something and to make something of yourself. Yeah. And you knew that early. Yeah. If I can, like, trace a a fundamental desire, it was present in me then. I think, actually, in the last couple years, I think I feel less embarrassed by ambition. Why would you be embarrassed? I don't know. I think because when your sort of dreams feel like they are just about you, That feels embarrassing when they feel tethered to something that feels bigger than you. Mm. I find that kind of ambition, frankly, less embarrassing. I think it is less embarrassing. It is, absolutely. It's like always been that for me. Now I just have a clear pathway. A pathway in language. Yeah, pathway in language, yeah. And community. I'm curious about this because you as an ambitious young 20-something, going out on auditions, you would have this 
sports like tactic <laughs> walking into the room. And I'm curious where this came from, both the confidence and the tactic. This is embarrassing talking about this, but um, here we go. So this is like very vintage Hollywood. This is like a lot of people that are dressed vaguely the same in a waiting room, waiting to go in. The casting director hardly looks up from their paper. The whole experience feels very rushed, you know, and you feel like one of many. And so I would do this thing. I don't know. I discovered this thing that would help me, which is you'd walk in and they say, like, sit there if you want to sit in the chair or stand there. And I would just move the chair before I would sit in it, which is to say, like, I'm allowing myself to take up space. Autonomy. Autonomy, yeah. In a situation where... You have none. And that was just helpful for me. How did you know to do that? I think it just occurred to me. Maybe I did it once and then realized everything in me relaxed after doing it. Yeah, kind of realizing how to, um, yeah, how to take up space, I guess. Which I think is also, particularly then, I think, just hard to do as like a young black person trying to make stuff. How do you take up space when you enter these massive films like Creed or Thor or Men in Black? How do you do that on a, on a movie that costs $100 million? You know, working in collaboration with people that want to give you space, that have hopefully hired you because of your unique contribution. And then there are like many little battles that you win inside of it. It's been really interesting to work with Ryan Coogler on Creed One, his first sort of outing into the studio space and watch him navigate that with such grace. Some battles he didn't win and some he did. I think that's the negotiation with art and commerce. But I think at the other end of it is this idea that you could potentially do something that that is subversive inside of this big space that people globally are going to engage with. And that, to me, is really interesting. Was Ryan Coogler's grace part of the inspiration that led you to think, I could make a company of my own? Yeah, it was his grace watching his grace, watching so many people that I've had proximity to do that. It takes brilliance and patience to learn you know, how to make the work you want to make inside of these systems. And then at a certain point, you also might decide, like, I want to make my own system. <laughs> now that I understand what it means, what it looks like to have a seat at the table, I just, I'd like to make my own table. What does that look like? I think that's a part of, you know, creating this company, which is not to say that we're not going to be in collaboration with or working with studios, our deal set up at HBO, HBO Max. We're working inside of a system, but we're trying to find our own way. You know, someone that I work really closely with who was an independent producer before named Kishori, who's really brilliant. We had really early conversations in the construction of the company and the kind of stories that we want to tell. And she made this brilliant show called Random Acts of Flyness. And one of the things that they talked about a lot in that writer's room is how do we talk about blackness without talking about whiteness? How do we talk about queerness without talking about heterosexuality? And I thought that was so fascinating. So it's sort of finding new ways of working, of thinking, of ideating around story. And then setting a table and inviting folks that think and feel in similar ways that want to make work. Not just want to make the same kind of work, but want to make it for the same reasons. Invite them over and have plenty of food and drink and time and space to, to build. You know, something Terrence Nance, who made the show you're talking about, mm. if you look at his early work, date back to oversimplification of her beauty. Yeah now to this show and and he's done a whole bunch in between i do know for him his definition of what he's wanted to do has changed in the way that all of ours does and as we leave this i'm wondering how has it changed for you after the last two years i feel really sensitive to what the offering is i guess what it feels like what does that mean it's been such a hard time for people. I think, you know, we spoke to this idea of making work, why you make this show, why I enjoy this show, that it makes me feel less alone. I think that's like always been at the heart of why I want to do what I do, why I tell stories. In the industry, I feel like recently there's a lot of conversation around like making things that feel hopeful. <laughs> 
I think a lot about what hope means, really what it means. And something that feels very hopeful to me is to offer something that feels really true, even inside of its pain, but that there's a promise of growth. That to me feels like hope, you know. The stories that I remember, like watching something in a cinema and being like, you know, like very juvenile idea that I wanted to make something. I, I don't know. It's it's hard to sort of describe in words, but it's more a feeling that you leave sort of bolstered, that you've seen something that helps you make sense of what this is, what this life that we're living is, which is daunting and terrifying and too much sometimes, you know. But to feel held in that for a moment, it's like huge. Three years ago, you gave a moving speech at the Essence Awards. <laughs> I don't remember what I said, no. <laughs> you gave a speech, unless it was your sister, who was in the audience. Who was, yeah. Wearing sunglasses. Yeah, she was. She looks so cool. She always looks cool. I know. She's much cooler than both of us. Definitely. Combined. Yeah. No, thanks. <laughs> I thought combined we could maybe take her. Okay, fine. You're right. Together. No, no, no. You're together, right. Together. She's cooler. Okay. You're giving the speech. Mm-hmm. And... About two and a half minutes into it, you say, I know the system has favored black women with fairer complexions. This truth has, yes, benefited me. And it's also left me with a profound anger and confusion as to why I would be in the pursuit of gaining success inside of such ugliness. In the three years since you gave that speech, are you still angry and confused? Not as much as I was then. I know now with more certainty, what I can do, what actionable things I can do to try to dismantle that system. And this is work that I'll do until I can no longer do it, and then someone else will do it, and people are doing it with me. It's just the way that it goes. That's one of the big aims of Viva Mod and now Producora work, is like, what stories can I help get told that have space for a wide variety of projections of Blackness, and in particular Black women, that get to lens with tenderness Black women that are not me, (laughs) you know, that are all shades and sizes. Let them take up space. The thing you want to do with the company, if I'm getting it right, is a little bit what's happening here in passing, which is creating a story with characters that have idiosyncrasies Mm. that are flawed Mm. and full-hearted. Yeah. And as we leave this, I was thinking about how, as a kid, you would spend time with your grandmothers, and you'd often look at old photographs of them Mm -hmm. where they would have these hats and gloves that, that you would never wear in the modern age, but you did get to wear in passing. I don't know if I'm thinking about this because I've met your family, but I'm, I'm thinking about it now. Have you had a moment in the last year with this movie out in the world where the full circle nature of all of that, that you got to be some part of them in this film? Yeah. There are so many women that I've known, my grandmothers, my mother included, and so many women that I have been that I feel like are embedded into Irene and that I was um, calling on while making that. Because I think there's a lot that both of these women in the film are contending with that have to do with them in relation to patriarchy that they exist in. But then I think this full circle moment that you're talking about, the enormity of it really hit me. I was on the cover of Ebony magazine and thinking about my grandmother who passed when I was a teenager, like what that would have meant to her. Thinking about the women that are on those covers, what they meant to my grandmother, how they connected her to her own beauty and brilliance. And then to imagine that I'm now, by proxy, one of those women and also that I come from her. Like, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's like a, that was a, yeah, that was a moment for me. Hmm. And my grandfather would have liked it, too. He came from Bully, Oklahoma, drove produce all around the country. Also, I feel like there is this 
impetus to want to be cool about the things, you know, that we do, the chances that we get. And I like to participate. I like to keep it cool. And then every so often I think about my grandparents in particular, my maternal grandfather who came from Mexico, you know, who was a performer himself, who like had a residency. I learned recently doing some research, he like played, he was like a big band leader and he was in Chicago for a while, had like a stint there. What I am getting to do, my grandparents like couldn't even dream of in a way. It's hard to be too cool when you really think about that. Well, I thank you for not being that cool on the show. <laughs> I'm not that cool anyways, turns out. You're all right. <laughs> You've done so much, and yet there's so much more to be done. I don't know what that is. Yeah. I don't know. I just keep thinking of you walking into an audition, moving that damn chair. <laughs> I didn't move this chair, by the way. This chair, I sat exactly where you put it. Happily. <laughs> Makes it sound like I'm like a dictator. <laughs> I was trying to pay you a compliment. I'm so bad at that. <laughs> Try again. Okay, compliment take two. Here we go. <laughs> it wasn't about the chair. Mm. It was about you claiming some autonomy in a space that is actively working against anyone who's trying to be autonomous. Mm. And my hope for the years to come and your work on screen with your company, life outside of it. Is that you keep moving the chair? Thank you so much. Is that okay? Yes. Tessa Thompson, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Anytime. show. Special thanks to the team at Shelter PR, Lauren Gold, Alexandra Belamos Reynoso, and Kara Tripicchio. I'd also like to thank Jennifer McCann at Netflix, and of course, the inimitable Tessa Thompson. Her new film, Passing, is available to stream on Netflix. To learn more about Tessa's work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. Once you're there, you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes with artists and activists, including Alana Hyam, Lord, Jenea Future Khan, Steven Soderbergh, Janelle Monet, Toyin Oji Odatola, Matthew McConaughey, Coleman Domingo, and Brittany Packnett Cunningham. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to send in an email or a voice memo for our upcoming mailbag episode, you can send that to mail at TalkEasyPod.com. That's mail at TalkEasyPod.com. It can be a comment, reflection, a question, really anything you'd like to share or hear more about. If you want to support Talk Easy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with Fran Leibowitz, you can do so at talkeasypod.com slash shop. If you want to support us in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the show with a friend. The second best thing you can do is rate this show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to listen. Reviewing a podcast on these platforms, believe it or not, in 2022, is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. Speaking of, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Julius Chu, Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, Nikki Spina, and Callie Syringas. I also want to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Questlove. Until then, stay safe 
and so on. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.